Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. We are here in Atoka, Oklahoma. <laughs> oh, wait, no. I'm sorry. That's that's where the rooster's from. We're not in Atoka, but we are in Norman, Oklahoma, and we are being joined by our good friend James Buckley, back from Louisiana, joining us to attack Allison Chains versus Stone Temple Pilots. Yeah. How you doing, James? I am doing wonderfully, guys. It's always a thrill to talk to you guys, and it's always a thrill to talk about one of my favorite topics. Both of these albums are turning 30 in about a month. Yeah, just to let you guys know, two days ago, it was what would have been Lane Staley's 55th birthday. Three days ago, it was the 32nd anniversary of Facelift, and by the time this episode comes out, it will be September, which is when both Core and Dirt came out on the same day, September 29th, 30 years ago this September. It's incredible. I can't believe these albums are that old. We're old, man. Yeah, I mean, We're Alternative old. should not be 30 years old. <laughs> I distinctly remember buying both of these albums at the record store, and my hairline also remembers because <laughs> I had one. You know, that's definitely changed over the past 30 years. Hey, you know, the funny thing is, is this was originally slated for season two on the 29th anniversary. Yeah, and they we were like, like, why would we do that? That's dumb. That's dumb. We can't do 29. No. Let's do 30. 30, for So sure. here we are, pushed from season two, now in season three, Stone Temple Pilots Core versus <laughs> Alice in Chains Dirt. What were you doing in 92, James? Uh, I was in college. I had taken one of my frequent sabbaticals, and I had just come back. I was trying to get wrapped up. What were you doing in 92, Steve? In 92, I was in a band myself. We were covering STP songs. I was learning how to play Rooster on the guitar. It would, I love Rooster taught me that chords don't have to be regular chords. You can take a chord and just throw it anywhere on the guitar and it might end up sounding good. Just added that to the set list again. So if you ever come through Monroe, we're going to grab you up on stage. I'm telling you now. Yeah. yeah. I'm pretty sure I can still pull it out. I don't know about a lead, but I can definitely do the intro for sure. Yes. I'll be there for that one, man. Oh, it'll be a fun show. I guarantee you. Now, James, you are an admin on one of the 90s groups on Facebook, right? Correct. That was a very special musical era for me. I came up out of the 80s. I was a huge metalhead, but I had a dark secret. I like bands like Depeche Mode, you know, The Cure, The Fix, The Police at the same time. So in the 90s alternative stuff, when I started hearing bands like Nirvana and Toad the Wet Sprocket and the Lemonheads, that resonated with me because it seemed to combine my two favorite things, you know, fairly aggressive guitar and drums, slightly more introspective lyrics. So I was a happy man for about 10 years. Before we keep going, I want to give a quick shout out to my good friend, Kevin Davis. Kevin is a guy who one night as I was sitting down to study up on one of our episodes is like, Hey, then your kid wrestle. And I was like, uh, yeah, he's there right now. And he goes, yep. My grandson too. And we got to talking and his grandson's name is Halen as in Van Halen. And I was like, we are going to be best friends. Wow. We're totally going to be best friends. And so he, I turned him on to the podcast and he has been a avid listener since I showed him the podcast and he gave us a music review. And I, James is back from our uh, comparison of girls, 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 and white snake. And he gave us a review on that one. So I just wanted to read it. 
Kevin says, I agree with the host that White Snake was much better than Girls, Girls, Girls. The crew can light their White Johnsons on fire and I wouldn't <laughs> care. Thanks for another great show. Now I must return to my marble arch. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, Kevin. Thank you so much. He, he does like multiple reviews. He throws it's, them out all the time. It's yeah, awesome. Just about every episode, he'll give us a new review and I see him all the time. I go to that same restaurant all the time and we just talked it up. He is a fantastic guy. When I told him we were doing Alice in Chains, he was like, oh my gosh, one of my favorite bands. So, decided for that. This one's for you, Kevin. There you go. Speaking of which, the guitar player for my band saw Motley Crue in Texas last night. What's the verdict? Well, he said they were still really entertaining. Vince was a bit off, but he said that Tommy Lee, possibly in light of recent online shenanigans, instead of encouraging the women in the audience to flash him, he encouraged the men in the audience to expose their giraffes. Let's just say it that way. You mean my Johnson? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Thankfully, Preston said no one did. So. Oh, my gosh. That's hilarious. Alice in Chains. I, I distinctly remember back in the 80s and 90s, there was a magazine called RIP or RIP or whatever. It's a metal magazine. Yep. At the end, they would always have a really extensive selection of reviews. And because I lived in a very rural area, I was always worried I was missing out on something cool. And I remember reading the review for Facelift, the first Alice in Chains album. I was on a massive Sabbath kick at the time, and they hit all the right notes with the review. said slow, doomy riffs, pounding drums, Black Sabbath influence. So I went to a local record store over the next few days and actually found a copy of Facelift. And oh, man, it was love at first listen. That's cool. It is a great album. And then, of course, that man in the box off of that album is what brought them into the spotlight. You know, the year that I graduated from high school was 1991. And so fall of 91 is when the grunge thing really catches fire. You know, facelift predates that a little bit. And so we we were aware of Allison Chains or whatever. But when I left my hometown and went to the university, there's a shift in music. And so it's very easy for me to split high school music and college music. And this is one of those that was very, very college. Absolutely. I was an early college but that's still more to transition i had a couple of cool friends who were much cooler than i was who kept saying you need to listen to this you need to listen to that they warped me forever i'm afraid <laughs> were you guys ready to jump in absolutely let's jump into the history of allison chase okay history of allison chains starts March 18th, 1966, with the birth of little Jerry Cantrell. Little over a year and a half later, we have the birth of Lane Staley on August 22nd, 1967. And then just almost exactly two years later, there's a book that comes out by Dr. Seuss called My Book About Me. <laughs> and Jerry Cantrell, little kid, Lane Staley, little kid, both had a copy of this book. And when it got to the part of what I want to be when I grow up, Lane Staley put, I want to be a singer. And Jerry Cantrell put, I want to be a rock star. So as early as the late 60s, early 70s, these guys had predicted their future. That's really cool. Did you guys have uh, awesome lawyers written down in your Dr. Seuss book? Ah, yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure Rockstar was in my book, too. <laughs> yeah, archaeologist or superhero. <laughs> Sadly. Uh, I want to be a stuntman. I definitely had that book, though. Yeah. My kids have that, I book. Had, I had that I, book. I think it's required reading for everyone that exists. Yep. All right. So we fast forward a little bit to 1986 and the birth of a band called Sleaze. <laughs> So 
1986, some high school friends, Byron Hansen, Johnny Bacoles, Zoli Samante, and James Bergstrom put together a band and they needed a singer. And a friend of theirs named Ken Elmer says, hey, my stepbrother really wants to be a singer. You should listen to him. And they're like, okay, what's his name? And he says, Lane Elmer. Mm-hmm. Because at that point, he was not using his own last name. He was using his stepdad's last name. Well, there's a little bit of argument about whether Lane actually wanted to be a singer or not. He was a drummer, but he went and did the audition for this new band that they were going to name Sleaze. And do you know what song he sang? He sang Looks That Kill by Molly Crew. <laughs> Yep. Um, also, I saw that he also sang Now She's a Cool, Cool Black. There you go. There's some rumors that he may have also sang the song Love Machine by Wasp. I heard that as well. Yep. Yeah. This being a family-oriented show, I'm not going to translate that. <laughs> into, well, whatever Motley Crue or Wasp song that he sang, they realized this guy has got the soul and the timber and the voice that is going to make our band. He said, we didn't know what we were looking for, but when we saw him, we said, that's it. Yep. Yep. So interestingly, Lane Staley, you mentioned Lane Elmer, which is so funny because his name, Lane Staley, that's his mother's maiden name. And of course, his father's surname. And so Lane Staley is his parents' last names. I think that's really cool. And then in high school, he goes by Lane Elmer, right? Right. When his mother went back to his 20th high school reunion, Uh of course, Lane was dead. Yes. She went back and people were like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you telling me that Lane Elmer is the same guy as Lane Staley? They didn't even know. They had no friggin' clue. That's crazy. That is crazy. And to just bring Motley Crue back into the mix again, his name, his birth name was Lane Rutherford Staley. He had it legally changed to Lane Thomas Staley. And do you know where the Thomas comes from? No. Tommy Lee. He changed his name what? to Thomas because, remember, he was a drummer before he was a singer. He loved Tommy Lee. He loved Motley Crue. He gave himself the middle name Thomas because of Tommy Lee. Wow, that's fantastic. So Sleaze ultimately changes its name. I got the impression that they might have signed. And here's where I got this impression. This is good. You guys are going to appreciate this. There was a protest going on for the PMRC. You guys know the PMRC, right? Yes. We've talked about it multiple times, right? Yes. So they were having some sort of town meeting there somewhere in Washington, and Frank Zappa was the guest speaker, and Lane Staley is in the audience with Bacillus, and at some point, he stands up and starts berating the PMRC. And of course, he also plugs his band. Yes, exactly. A few times. Um, I play for a rock band called Sleaze, and... I mean, there's enough controversy on our on our name, more or less, than our songs. Um, you know, we've just signed a local with a local record company. I don't feel there's anything objectionable about any of our songs, but I don't feel anyone anyone else has the right to rate our songs. I mean, I'm the only one that has the right to rate, you know, my album. You don't have it. When I watched that interview, I'm like, this looks like a 17 year old kid who's just popping off about something dumb. And that probably his 30 year old self would be like, that kid needs to shut up. But (laughs) it was funny to see, though. Absolutely. You know, that sleaze was really kind of a hair band. Oh, yeah. It was glam metal. Yeah, it was glam metal. And 
they had, as I said, they had, he gave the impression that they had gotten signed with somebody, although I didn't really see that to be true somewhere, but they were doing a tour and the, they had some success. Bacalus was having a conversation with a guy named Russ Klatt, who was the singer for Slaughterhouse <laughs> Five. It's all their house. Slaughterhouse Five. <laughs> They're talking about sleaze and welcome to the Wonderland tour. And just that word Wonderland and their whatever they were drinking or smoking at the time, somehow that transitioned to Alice in Wonderland and Alice in Chains. And it was Alice in Bondage first. And, and then it became Alice in Chains. So Lane Staley's mother was very religious, Christian science. Yep. Very religious. And so he was like, okay, I'm going to name this band Alice in Chains. She's like, that's female bondage. By the way, if you're on Wikipedia and you see female bondage in blue, don't click the link. <laughs> okay. Don't click the link. I'm just giving you that advice that's right a nice now. That's right? PSA right there. There you go. All right. Anyway, his mom was like, I don't really approve of that. She she said, sleaze was bad enough, but this sounds like female bondage and you shouldn't do it. But over her objection, he called it Alice in Change, but he changed the N to the letter N like guns in roses. Although it was not a copy of them. They weren't even popular yet at that point. Well, hey, one more thing on sleaze real quick. Yeah. Okay. Sleaze was actually in a movie. There's a movie called Father Rock shot in Seattle. Okay. Okay. Now, and they played a couple of, of their songs. Yeah. Lane even had a speaking part in this movie. Shut the heck up. Yes. Wow. Father Rock. I don't know. I didn't see it. I haven't seen it, but. Uh, Is this like a made for TV movie? Uh, okay. It's a all movie, right. All right. You know, I, I don't know, really. It's Wayne and Garth doing like the advertisements in the middle of this public access <laughs> movie. Steven Spielberg produced, I think. <laughs> Sleaze. I, I love the name Sleaze. Compared to some of the names that came later, that's actually almost pure and innocent. <laughs> yeah yes that's true that is true the, the some of the other names that came later we had mothra and then the f word the f word <laughs> and it wasn't the f word it was the f word yes they said they even had a great um merchandise said like f word the band and stuff like that but i don't think that would <laughs> i don't think that'd fly at walmart no no i think it's interesting that initially allison chains really took their cues from like poison almost right their stage presence was you know flash and glam they did stuff like confetti and water guns lane staley talks about two of his idols the two idols that he had david bowie and prince yep like i i just was like what this yeah. is the this is the guy that looks like the the devil child in these videos and his influences were ziggy stardust and the purple one how about that that's crazy let's go yeah, crazy he had some female acquaintance at one time who actually came across one of Prince's old suits. And yes. Lane evidently would wear it. He wore it on stage. Oh, my gosh. Hey, listen to this. I thought this was hilarious. So I guess Rob Halford from Judas Priest would ride his motorcycle on like the big stage, big concert for Judas Priest. Hell bent for leather. Hell bent for leather. There you go. And so uh, during early Alice in Chains concerts, Lane rode a big wheel. <laughs> <laughs> like you pulled out on stage, you know. That is awesome. <laughs> that is awesome. He he was actually a very upbeat, sort of positive, fun guy to be around. 
Yeah. Even when you read interviews of people who knew him later on at the height of his problems, they said that his personality never really changed. He was always a sweet, kind, generous guy. It's just that those demons, man. Dude, he was in a fight with the dragon. Hey, you mentioned Prince. When they were rehearsing in the early, early days, right? They had this rehearsal space. They had a VCR and two movies. One movie was The Terminator. <laughs> Go back and check out our podcast on The Terminator. Yeah. And the other one was Purple Rain. Fantastic. Was this in the music bank? Yes. Yes, nice. yes it was. Nice. Ian, the right. guy who controlled the keys would just sit in the office and watch them over and over and over again. So there's Lane again, always watching Purple Rain. <laughs> Lane, later on, will meet a guy named Jerry Cantrell. So before we get there, I got to give you a little history on Jerry Cantrell. First memory, three years old, meeting his father when he returned from Vietnam. Four years later, his parents would get divorced because of the troubles that his dad had from returning from Vietnam. They ended up on welfare and food stamps, but he found some musical success in high school. He was the president of his high school choir. How about that? He had gotten a guitar when he was in the sixth grade, but he really didn't appreciate it and pick it up and start doing anything until he got into high school. And so his success, I mean, his choir, that he was the president of, they were, they sang the national anthem at shows and were competition winners. And so his drama and his choir teachers encouraged his career in music as a gift. When he got his first gold record, he sent them each a copy of the gold record. That's fantastic. Now that was several years later, right after they encouraged him to go into a career in music, he quit college and went to go work in a guitar store down in Dallas, Texas. He had grown up as a kid on welfare and food stamps, so he wasn't afraid to be poor. But this, what the beautiful thing about what happened in Dallas was, is that working in this store, he got his first, what we call real guitar. It wasn't some Japanese knockoff. It wasn't some cheap Korean model. This was a GNL Rampage 1984. And I can tell you that having a real guitar is a key to becoming a real musician. He had a couple of bands over there in Dallas. One was called Rays. The other one was called Sinister, but ultimately he ended up back in Washington with the band Diamond Lie. I do remember reading that the reason he originally wanted to play guitar was listening to a couple of early Elton John albums. And interestingly enough, the first concert Lane Staley ever remembered going to was when Elton John, his stepdad took him to see Elton John when he was very young. Around this time, huge tragedy in Jerry Cantrell's life. His mother and grandmother both pass away within six months of each other, 1986, 1987, both from cancer. He falls into a significant depression. Three weeks after his mother's death, he meets Lane Staley. Now, he had seen Lane Staley perform earlier with the glam metal version of Alice in Chains. That's when was right. that? I've got May 1st, 1987. Okay. We're talking about the summer of 87? Well, it might be April. What do you what, what do you got? I got April 11th. No, no. May 1st. Okay. We'll go with yours. <laughs> we'll go with yours. Somewhere between April 11th and May 1st. Well, yes. So then five to four months later, Diamond Lie played their last show. Jerry has met Lane at a party, and they're both a little drunk, and Jerry somehow mentions that he's homeless. And so Lane says, hey, why don't you come stay with me? I am staying at this rehearsal studio called The Music Bank. Uh -huh. By the way, when Jerry saw Lane perform with Thousand Chains, mm -hmm. he said, I want to be in a band with that guy right there. Yeah. Well, then not too long after they become roommates, 
the ANC breaks up. Alice in Chains right. breaks up. And so Jerry is trying to put together a new band because his band's broken up. And Lane is trying to put together a funk band. <laughs> and they reach this agreement. They're like, hey, you know, um, I'll sing in your band if you play guitar in my band. Yeah. And that was their agreement. So Jerry Cantrell is trying to put together this band. Lane Staley is like, well, I played with this guy named Sean Kinney. He's really good. You might could use him as a drummer. Right. And Jerry Cantrell's like, great. Do you have his number? And he says, no, but I have his girlfriend's number. He's like, okay, who's his girlfriend? Melinda. Okay, great. Calls Melinda. She says, yeah, sure. He'll come meet with you. So he comes, plays drums for Jerry. And Jerry's like, you're great. I think I've got a great guy to play bass for us. I used to play with him in a band called Gypsy Rose. His name is Mike Starr. And Sean goes, well, that's really interesting because that's Melinda's brother. Yeah. Melinda Starr. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> and Melinda would have a key role to play later on as well. Yes. And so they rehearsed together. They were playing well, but it was becoming a problem that there were two bands going on. And so at some point, they just decided they were going to basically trick Lane into becoming only a singer for this band. And they're like, OK, Lane, you know, we you got your band and that's fine. We just we can't have a guy with two bands. So we're going to get another singer. And he's like, oh, all right. And so they would audition the guys in front of Lane. And they picked the worst singers that they could find. <laughs> singer, horrible singer after horrible singer. And Lane's just going crazy until finally they they top it off. They they throw the straw in that breaks the camel's back. And they have a male stripper audition as singer for the band. And finally, Lane's like, forget it. Forget it. I will be your singer. I will get rid of my funk band. And I will only sing for you guys. I kind of want to see the Lane Staley uh, Prince band. Yeah. You know? Well, funk band? Heck yeah. That Ron Holt, the guy who started up that band, it's called like 40 Seconds Hate or something like that. A few years back, he actually tried to sell a cassette he had online of some of their rehearsals, I think. Some early demos he recorded with Lane. I think the last count was up to about 5,000, I think. Wow. Cassette. So maybe, maybe your Prince cover is on there somewhere. Hey, let's go. Whoever bought that, if you're listening, put it out there on YouTube for us. Sean had actually, I think, met Lane several years previously at a the band had played a beach party sleaze had i think sean cornered lane after the concert and said yeah your band's great but your drummer sucks you need me and yeah. that's when he gave him his number his girlfriend's number rather. Yeah, gave him melinda's number <laughs> i'm uh i'm in between bones right now here's my girlfriend's <laughs> phone number <laughs> so lane committed full-time to the band diamond lie yeah, they had entertained the name Mothra and the F word, as we had discussed. Then they became Diamond Lie, which was Jerry's old band's name. But ultimately, they all decided they liked Alice in Chains better, but they changed the N to I-N because they liked the idea of female bondage. They would click the link. <laughs> um, okay. So they're at the music bank, and they just, I mean, they're living in a rehearsal space. I, as a musician... I can not imagine how awesome it would be to have a place where you live with your bandmates and all you do all day long is play music and try to come up with new stuff together, you know, when you're not watching Purple Rain. 
<laughs> exactly. Or the Terminator. They had this guy who was a local promoter named Randy Hauser, and he was like, you guys are great. I will fund a demo tape for you. Do the demo recording. We're going to do it at the Music Bank. Problem is, is that the day before they were supposed to record, Washington does its biggest marijuana bust in state history. And of course, there there's some drugs over at the Music Bank. Shocker. What? Yep. And they closed it down. Evidently, whoever had leased the building, somebody else had leased a different part of it. It built up a wall, partitioned it off, and had quite the weed operation going. <laughs> okay, wait. Let's back up because there's a story, a big story right before that. Okay? Okay, yeah. So Randy Hauser was in jail for dealing cocaine. <laughs> As okay. Oh, back in the 70s. okay. All right. This is not the first time we're going to talk about drugs in this episode. Trust me. So he was he was in jail. For dealing cocaine, he gets out, gets his life back together. He goes to beauty school. Beauty school dropout. <laughs> so, so he went to beauty school, and there he met Melinda Starr. Okay. She knew that he was this sort of local promoter, and he was looking to kind of do this. She gave him a cassette and asked him to listen to it. Keep in mind, her boyfriend at the time was Sean Kinney. Okay? okay. He takes that cassette home, tosses it in a box full of other demos from a million different groups that he never listens to. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now then, flash forward about a month from then, Nick Loft, who is an A&R guy from Atlantic, uh-huh. was staying at Randy Hauser's house. Okay. Don't know the story there. Don't really care. Okay. But he's going through this box of tapes, just kind of looking for something. Uh-huh. And when he pops in that tape that Melinda Starr had given him, yeah. he's like, who are these guys? Man, these guys got something. And the tape was not labeled. And so Randy's looking at the tape like, okay. I have no freaking idea where I got this tape, but he knows he's got something, right? Right. He's got something here. Uh-huh. And so he can't, for the life of him, remember where he got this tape. Okay. And so he's at the beauty school, racking his brain, racking his brain, racking his brain. And Melinda goes, did you listen to that tape I gave you? And it all clicks. Nice. Just when he finds the band that is going to, he's going to be able to break, the music bank gets busted for drugs well and that's when susan silver steps in kelly curtis was managing mother love bone and susan silver was managing soundgarden Soundgarden. married to chris cornell that's right yeah they ultimately got a copy of the demo that they ended up doing called the treehouse tapes so (laughs) randy hauser misses out so susan silver steps in and says this guy's a drug dealer he's going to get you guys in trouble Mm -hmm. i think i should do this yeah and so they're like we agree with you He's out. Right. And so she passes it on to Columbia. Columbia signs them after some negotiations, signs them on September 11th, 1989. Exactly two years to the day later, their debut album, Facelift, goes gold. So before, they, before they're signed, Allison Chains plays their first show. July 25th, 1988. The same summer, Lane meets a woman named Demery Perot. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, she's working on Saturdays. She is cute as a button. Mm-hmm. She looks like she just came right out of the sitcom Friends. Mm-hmm. Very, very pretty girl. Got it all together. She's going to play a part in this story. Yes, she is. Okay. Now, listen to this. June 1st. 1988. Jerry Cantrell attends a Guns N' Roses and Iron Maiden concert in Seattle. Yep. He manages to get backstage. He hands a demo tape to Axl Rose. He then watches Axl Rose walk about 10 feet away 
and throw that demo tape directly in the trash can. <laughs> so I called you the other night. We're going to, I'm going to total sidebar here, total sidebar. Yep. So I called you the other night because I had come across this thing and I have really have no idea where to put this. So I'm just going to put it now. Right. Yeah. So when they were supposed to record facelift, Sean Kenny had broken his hand. Yes. <laughs> and he's the drummer. So his hand's kind of important. He's broken his hand. And so they get a guy named Greg Gilmore to come in to replace him for the recording of the drums for this album. Sean Kinney's going to miss out on recording drums on their very first album, right? So this guy named Greg Gilmore, he was the drummer for Mother Love Bomb. The bands that we're talking about today have both have lost their singers to heroin. Scott Weiland, Lane Staley, both gone because of heroin. Heroin was involved in Kurt Cobain's death. And Jason pointed out, he's like, wow, Pearl Jam has made it through all of this and didn't have a heroin death. And I'm like, nope, because Pearl Jam started off as Mother Love Bone and Andy Wood died of a heroin overdose. Heroin has taken almost every lead singer of these major bands that we have of the day of that time. We threw in Sublime and Blind Melon and ton of it. But anyway, back to Greg Gilmore, also was the drummer for a punk band, punk band out of Seattle. And the punk band out of Seattle had a bass player who went down to LA after that band broke up and joined a band called Guns N' Roses. <laughs> and Duff McKagan, we talked about this in our Appetite for Destruction, Guns N' Roses. Usual illusion too. We, we probably did. He went down there joined this band and they were just starting out, but he had a band that had broken up and said, hey, we've got some dates that we have set with my old band. We can go up to Seattle and play those shows as Guns N' Roses. And they all talk about how this bus ride up there where like the van breaks down and everybody gets angry at each other and nobody shows up to the shows because they haven't done any self-promoting. That made them gel as a band. It was that thing that caused them to gel as a band. Greg Gilmore was the drummer for the band whose sets Guns N' Roses took over. Wow. But when he came in to play for Alice in Chains, Sean Kinney was trying to show him how to do the drums with one hand. And eventually they just said, uh, never mind. We'll just come back in a month or two when Sean Hand works again. <laughs> That's now, great. I remember an interview with Sean. He said he kept a, when he finally started playing, he kept the ice bucket right beside the drum set. So between oh, every cool. song or said he had to shove that hand in. And evidently the problem was, I don't know if y'all ever seen Sean Kinney. He's a real tall kind of big guy. He's a hard hitter. And evidently Gilmore just could not reach his level. I myself yeah. tend to subscribe to the Sean Kinney school of playing, but that's another story. <laughs> he said he kept standing there off stage going, hit it harder. No, no, no. Harder. So you mentioned that they signed in September of 89. Yes. That summer of 1989, they opened for, get this, Bullet Boys, Tesla, Great White. Wow. Cutting their teeth with the 80s hairbands. A, a little bit. Well, I don't know. I call it Tesla hairband, but yes. That's right. Sorry. Don't hit me for saying that. <laughs> This is evidently a, a time where Jerry Cantrell, as approached him, writing music began to change. He, they'd all come up in the glam, heavy metal scene. But Jerry was evidently very inquisitive. He would talk to other musicians, like punk bands, try to find out about their influences. He allegedly talked to Kim Thale, the guitar player for Soundgarden, about some of the songs he played off their Louder Than Love album. And Kim says that he showed Jerry the drop D tuning. Oh, which, wow. You know, okay. Jerry disputes. Jerry later said he learned it from Van Halen's Unchained. But Kim was doing some 
some really creative riffs at the time. So I can see Jerry being intrigued by that. The guys who were with him in Diamond Lies said that after his mom and his aunt died, that his songwriting also changed. It was less about girls and partying and more about personal issues. Well, I'm going to just keep the digression going because you mentioned Van Halen. <laughs> okay. And so I saw an interview just a couple of days ago with Sammy Hagar, and he was talking about Alice in Chains. And he was talking about how it was obvious to him that they were a part of the hairband glam metal scene that everybody was turning off and then Alice in Chains was the new up-and-coming band and so as opposed to fighting them he decided to join them and he called them up and said why don't you guys open up for our show and so Alice in Chains opened up for Van Halen and they were fantastic friends and I've also seen a picture where Van Halen is doing their typical, you know, where they march behind each other, doing the little shuffle back and forth. Well, Allison Chains snuck up behind them, dressed in nothing but G-strings to do the <laughs> little dance with them. That picture is hilarious. Yeah. Jerry Cantrell said that during that time, he became very good friends with Eddie Van Halen, all very down-to-earth guys. And he said, hey, you know, our, it was when they had that Music Man guitar. It was that time period for <clears throat> Eddie. He says, I really love that guitar. Would you ever let me buy one for me? And Eddie's like, buy one? Are you kidding me? He goes, this is the problem with the world. He goes, when you really need a guitar, nobody will give you one. And when you don't need it, everybody gives you all of them. And he says, I'll, I'll send one to you. And so Jerry had been staying. I believe it was at Chris Cornell's house. No, it was his manager. It was his manager at the time. When he gets home, the manager's like, hey, welcome back. Can you get all your crap out of my garage? And he goes down and his the garage is full of guitars and amps including a gold top music man guitar, which, I mean, it's beautiful and amazing in all sorts of ways. Sad part is just a couple of years later, somehow it got stolen on one of their tours and he did not have it until the internet and people being able to search things. And so 2018, somebody figured out what guitar had been sent to him by Eddie Van Halen, tracked it down in Florida, got it back and got it to him. He's now got it back again. Wow, that's cool. Okay, so after they've signed, it's now time to make a record. Dave Jordan was one of the many producers who is possible for this Alice in Chains record. Nobody wanted to do Alice in Chains because Guns N' Roses was super hot at the moment, and the high vocals of Axel is what everybody kind of gravitated towards. Mm -hmm. Well, Dave was attracted to the low vocals of Lane. He thought, man, this is really cool. This sounds like Black Sabbath. This is what I grew up on. And so... He wanted to do their record. So they were playing in LA and he goes to check them out. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I thought this was really funny. When he goes to check them out, there were four people in the audience. Four. <laughs> Dave, Dave's manager, a guy on acid dancing on the on the floor, <laughs> like going crazy. And Rick Rubin. What? DJ Double R? DJ Double R. Our man Deaf Dave just had a baby right there when I said that. <laughs> But uh, yeah, the guy who produced Run DMC and Slayer, he was there as a possible producer as well. After a few songs, he's like, nope, these guys aren't for me. I'm out down to three people in the room. Rick Rubin passed on Alice in Chains. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. That is tragic. And at that time, he decided instead to go to, Wol to Wolfsbane. Yeah, Wolfsbane. <laughs> you know, world famous. Yeah, Wolfsbane. All right. <laughs> yeah, famous for their singer filling in for Bruce Dickinson for a while in Iron Maiden. That's about oh, it. Oh, wow. There you yeah. go. Yeah. So Jordan ended up as the producer. And their first album is Facelift. It comes out with a smashing single, Man in the Box. And all of a sudden, everyone in the country knows who Alice in Chains is.
they led, I think, with We Die Young as a single, and it didn't quite catch on. I think in the first few months, they sold maybe 40,000 copies. But when they released Man in the Box, within six weeks, I think they'd sold 400,000 copies. So I've got a couple of things I want to talk about Man in the Box real quick. Dave Jordan was driving to the studio one day, thinking about the recording that day for Allison Chance. What comes on the radio? Living on a Prayer by Bon Jovi. As he's listening, he's like, you know what Man in the Box needs? A voice box. You're you're telling me that the voice box in Man in a Box came from Living in a Prayer by Bon Jovi? Yes. Oh, my gosh. It's one of the two pieces of equipment they bought for this album. They bought like a $500 (laughs) bass guitar and a $100 voice box, and that's the reason why. Wow, 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 wow. Oh, that's it. That's you know, it. Dave Jordan's had he had some credibility coming into this. He had already done James Addiction's Nothing Shocking back in 1988. Yep. Which is one of my favorite albums. He did the first social distortion album. He'd done some stuff for Anthrax. So the guy, he clearly knew his way around a guitar-based band. The other man in the box story I want to tell real quick. The CEO of MTV, they brought in a new guy and he wanted to change what they were doing at the time. So there was a conscious shift to move away from hair metal and move to something different. So one day they had two videos that they were deciding whether or not to get into heavy rotation. One of them was by Blue Murder. Remember them? Yeah, Blue Murder is Sykes. Sykes, Sykes. John Sykes. John Sykes, who is responsible for the White Snake album. Yes. It's his band, Blue Murder, yes. So they had a Blue Murder video that they wanted to play or Allison Chain's Man in the Box. And they chose to move away from hair metal with that selection, moved that Allison Chain's Man in the Box song to their what they called the, the buzz clip of the week or buzz bin or whatever. And that contributed to their massive rise in popularity. that john sykes cannot catch a break john sykes cannot catch a break bad gum <laughs> fired from white snake and shunned by mtv i did read a inter- cool interview with um jordan talking about it later so one of the reasons he thinks he got the job he was talking to jerry cantrell and said i liked your approach he said what metallica did by speeding up tony almy's riffs you're doing by slowing them down said jerry cantrell said you got it man that's it and jordan said that's how we got the job <laughs> That's fantastic. Okay, I got a couple of things for you on Facelift really quick. There's a song on there called Real Thing. That is a very prophetic song. Okay. Well, tell me about it. Well, it's most of the songs on that album don't really seem to seem to be more observational, talking about bad things in life. But I mean, that song has lines like played around as a boy, grew up and made the blade my new toy. And later on, he talks, I went to rehab and the doctors didn't do me no good. And Wow. Yeah. And so even then, there was some suggestion. Even though Lane's, all his friends say that Lane's drug use wasn't that bad at this point. He really hadn't touched heroin. There were some hints. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about the lyric at the very end when Lane yells, Sexual chocolate, baby. (laughs) 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 That is a clear reference to Coming to America. We done a coming to America. Yeah, that was one of our first episodes. Oh, gotta check that one out. Okay, it is a fantastic one. Okay, I got one more facelift story for you. The guys were recording in L.A. and at night, when they got done recording, you know, hard day at the office, they would go 
to Motley Crue's favorite strip joint, the Tropicana. <laughs> right? As discussed in the travel log, girls, girls, girls. That's right. They they apparently that Tropicana is where they lost their heart as well. But they got a calendar that had pictures of all the Tropicana girls, and they would put big red X's over each girl that they slept with from the Tropicana. It's kind of like an advent calendar. <laughs> <laughs> What are we opening today? <laughs> okay, one date I've got to bring up is March 15th, 1990. That is the day that Andrew Wood of Mother Love Bone died of a heroin overdose. Mother Love Bone was on the cusp of maybe breaking big. And all these guys went to the funeral. Yeah. And they knew what he died of. Yep. I mean, the sign says, warning ahead. Well, there's a reason they call it a monkey on your back. Some living thing that you can't control and can't get to. Yep. In August of 90 is when Facelift was released and it was dedicated to Andy Wood. Yeah. It was also dedicated to Jerry Cantrell's mother, Gloria, whose name comes up in one of their songs on the album we're going to cover here in just a little bit. Yep. But before we get there, we had a little bit of stuff that happened in between Facelift and Dirt. And one of those things is that these guys were in a real movie. Yeah. They, they were, were in a movie called Singles. And while they were in there making that movie, Cameron Crowe said, hey, I need you guys to get a song together for this soundtrack. And I will, of course, pay the fee for you to record it. And so just like Huey Lewis had done <laughs> years before yep. they came in and they used their studio time to record that song along with about 10 other songs mostly acoustic stuff um, did some demos for Rooster and another couple of songs but during that recording process Sean Kenny comes in and he says I had a dream last night that we released an EP and it was called Sap and all the guys said well we can't mess with fate Let's do it. And they took all of those songs that they had recorded on the sly while they were just supposed to be recording wood for the single soundtrack. And they turned that into an EP called Sap. And that album is awesome. One of my favorites. My, oh, it's amazing. It was released on my birthday in 1992. I remember that well for some reason. Huh. And it's... Uh, we, can we make a brief digression back towards singles? Yeah. Sure. Uh, that movie, I mean, it was a typical 90s rom-com but with worse wardrobe, even worse hair, but just an amazing soundtrack. When that was released in that summer prior to the release of Dirt, I picked it up and hearing Wood and seeing the direction Alice and James were taking their new music, I was so excited, man. I could not wait for Dirt to come out a few months later. But anyway, I'm sorry. No, I think it's important. I mean, because the reason that they're that Alice in Chains is predominant in that movie is because they were an established band at that time. Soundgarden was also an established band, so much so that the Matt Dillon part was supposed to be played by Chris Cornell. Ooh. But then they realized Chris Cornell can't act, and so they gave the part to an actor, and they gave Chris Cornell this small part where he's watching the car explode from the speakers, which is a great part. I love that part. You've got the guys from Pearl Jam in it before their Pearl Jam. I mean, before they have done anything, Thing, they're in the band as Matt Dillon's band. And you'll Citizen remember... Dick. Oh, sorry. Yes, that's it. Citizen Dick, yes. <laughs> and you'll remember that when we talked about Pearl Jam and Nirvana at that time, those guys in Seattle, they were so secluded and it was just that kind of weird sub-pop managed to get somebody from a major magazine to do a story on the Seattle sound. And that's really what caused that whole 
group of bands to explode. But before that, they had worked together. Like they weren't in competition. They were deepest friends, right? That's why they all went to Andy Wood's funeral. That's yeah. why they would all ultimately go together to Lane Staley's funeral. But all of those guys were involved together. And because Alice in Chains was the band that was most established at that time, that's the one, that's why they were so predominant in that movie. That soundtrack was amazing. But we even had early Pearl Jam material on there. So that was really fun. But going back to Sap, I remember listening to that the first time. And I was so used to all the doomy riffs off Facelift that it took me like one listen to adjust what they're doing. But then you realize, wow, these guys are really talented musicians and they've written some beautiful songs on this album. I can remember when I started listening to these guys, I thought to myself, this guy is a genius. He is a genius guitar player. He makes this weird combination of blues, metal, and some kind of psychedelic texture. It just has a sound all his own. Sap for an EP had pretty good. You had Ann Wilson from Heart singing back up on one song. Blows me away, man. On Brother and Inside, you had Jerry Cantrell making his first lead vocal appearance on the song, uh, I think it was on Brother. Hey, and then you had Alice Mudguard. School choir. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> you had Alice Mudgarden, which was Alice in Chains, Mark Arm from the band Mud Honey. So if you ever looked at him, he looks kind of like a bargain basement Tom Cruise. <laughs> <laughs> and then you've got Chris Cornell wailing away in the background is all he could. It was just such a fun album and such a surprising album. And I think it actually sold within two weeks. It had gone gold, sold over 500,000 copies. So that's not a bad fill-in. So fall of 91, they're touring with Van Halen. This is when the big H comes in. Heroin shows up right here. According to Mike Starr's dad, Demery Perot introduced it to Lane, and Lane introduced it to Mike Starr. The manager of Allison Chains got a phone call one night and it was Lane and he was telling him how much he loved heroin. He and Demery could not talk enough about it. They were just going on and on about how great it was. He's like, as soon as I heard that, they were fighting a losing battle. According to one friend, Lane got down on his knees and thanked God for feeling so good. And from there, it just never stopped. At this time, Mike Starr started like scalping Van Halen tickets in front of his own concert uh-huh. to raise drug money. It said his guest list started growing longer and longer for each show because he was adding people who, I guess, bought tickets off of him. It's crazy, right? When the money started coming in from their first album and from these EPs, I thought this was interesting. They were pretty conservative with their money. Jerry Cantrell, going with his Oklahoma roots, bought a Dodge pickup. Is it limited? I don't know. I'm not sure. (laughs) So right before Dirt comes out, there is an intervention conducted on behalf of Lane. His family meets with him. His band meets with him, even though his band is doing drugs as well. Right. And they say, look, dude, you got to get this problem taken care of. And so Lane says, okay, I will get this problem taken care of. And that's when he went to rehab. The first time. The first time. And then he didn't ever have to go again and everything's okay. Lane went 12 or 13 times in his life. And it never ever took well apparently was the greatest thing in his life it it really was as a matter of fact it was so good it was worth dying for yep all right we are ready to jump into dirt track by track next week james thanks for being here buddy always a blast to hang out with my oklahomies you're coming back so we can do track by track together this is an album sometimes it's a tough listen but it's one i listen to over and over year after year so i can't wait Awesome. awesome Guys, we will see you next week. Be sure and hit that subscribe button on your podcast app or follow, if you will. Be sure and check us out on Twitter, at Shirley Podcast, on Facebook, at Shirley Podcast. Send us an email at ShirleyPodcast at gmail.com. 
And if you loved this episode and want to become an executive producer like our good friend James, you can go to our Patreon page. That is patreon.com slash Shirley Podcast, S-U-R-E-L-Y-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. And for as little as five bucks a month, you can become an executive producer and you get access to our super secret sneaky episodes where we are covering one hit wonders and some extras just for our Patreon subscribers. So be sure and check that out. Guys, we love you. Can't tell you how much we appreciate you listening all the way through. We will see you next week for Dirt Track by Track. Bum 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 b